Well, it's Monday, everyone, the start of a new week. And if you're looking at your own personal calendar, you might see some meetings, some appointments. Maybe you're going to see some friends, maybe a grocery run if you have time. Let's just say the leading candidate for the Republican nominations calendar looks a little bit different. Let's just say he's going to be spending a lot more time with lawyers than you are, or than I hope you are. Now, just hours ago, Trump's team filed a Hail Mary request with the Supreme Court asking them to pause the ruling from the D.C. Circuit that rejected his claim of immunity. And earlier today in Florida, Trump showed up at a federal courthouse for a closed-door, high-stakes hearing on classified evidence in the Mar-a-Lago documents case. He has been busy. But wait, there's more. This Thursday in New York, the judge overseeing Trump's hush money case may schedule the start of that criminal trial for as early as next month. We'll see. We'll all be watching. And this Friday, also in New York, the judge overseeing Trump's civil fraud trial is expected to deliver his ruling on whether Trump can continue to do business in New York and basically how many millions he will have to pay in damages. I mean, by any account, that is a packed week. And it's a packed week in courtrooms all across the country. But I do want to zero in on what is happening right now, because just down the street at the Supreme Court here in Washington, Trump is where Trump is once again pressing the issue of presidential immunity. I mean, he's not physically there, as I just said, but this is something that he pushed forward today. Remember just last week, a federal appeals court unanimously ruled that Trump is not immune from prosecution on charges of trying to overturn the 2020 election. That was just last week. Writing, former President Trump has become citizen Trump with all of the defenses of any other criminal defendant. Citizen Trump. Not immune from prosecution, not above the law. Imagine that. Trump, for one, does not want to imagine that, which is why he is now asking the Supreme Court to intervene. And we've already heard a lot of the arguments his team is now making in this filing. where We've heard them all before. Like, say, the claim that a president can only be prosecuted if Congress first impeaches and convicts him. For that one, by the way, they cite a case that my first guest tonight was a crucial part of. They also argue this would usher in a, quote, destructive cycle that opens up any president to prosecution. Now, here's a crazy thought. Future presidents could also just avoid breaking the law. And they say that absent a stay here, Trump will immediately be required to bear the burdens of prosecution and trial. Again, it feels a little bit like he should have thought of that all before, you know, trying to overthrow an election. And that last one pretty much sums it all up. Because this is a clear effort to delay, delay, delay. This is a a big part of their tactics. Because whether or not the court takes this up could have a huge impact on letting voters know if they are casting their ballots for a convicted criminal on Election Day. Because if the justices decide, if they decide to accept this case, to take the case, not even how they decide, if they take it, they will get to weigh in on the concept of presidential immunity and in all likelihood would reject that claim just like the appeals court did. But the federal election trial would all but certainly be delayed while those proceedings unfold. Again, delay, delay, delay. And if they decline it, the appeals court ruling that Trump is not immune would stand, and the trial could start sooner. So this also a huge impact. The timeline here is hugely consequential, as is what this request tells us about Donald Trump himself. And this struck me when I was reading this today, because this relentless quest for immunity is a window into how he sees himself and how he would likely lead in a possible second term. According to Donald Trump and his lawyers, he is above the law. He operates by a different set of rules than all of us. 
He can shoot someone on Fifth Avenue and not lose any voters. He can act inappropriately toward women. And because he's a star, they just let him do it. He can order SEAL Team 6 to assassinate a political rival. And as long as Congress is okay with it, he can avoid prosecution. That's literally one of their arguments. This is not the first time Trump has tried this get-out-of-jail-free card in law or in life. And it's not even the first time the Supreme Court weighed in on this very issue regarding Donald Trump. Take a look at this headline. The Supreme Court just revoked Trump's get-out-of-jail-free card, says the headline. That is not a headline from the future. That is from almost four years ago. Back in 2020, then-Manhattan District Attorney Saivan sought records from Trump's accountants relating to his investigation into alleged hush money payments to Stormy Daniels. Trump asked the justices to block the subpoena, claiming, you guessed it, if you've been following closely here, presidential immunity. But in what became known as Trump v. Vance, the Supreme Court ruled that a president is not immune from criminal investigation. Chief Justice John Roberts wrote this for the majority, which is just as relevant now as it was then, even more, perhaps. He quoted, he quoted a former chief justice, John Marshall, saying, quote, a king is born to power and can do no wrong. The president, by contrast, is of the people and subject to the law. And joining me now is the Vance from Trump v. Vance, former Manhattan District Attorney Cyrus Vance. He's now a partner at the law firm Baker McKenzie. So let me let me start here. The, the case you won is cited here in this request from the Trump team where they actually quote from the dissenting opinion. I'm interested in your thought on that. But they quote, criminal prosecution can come about only after the Senate's judgment, not during or prior to the Senate trial. We've heard this argument before, but what do you make of it and the ways in which you were referenced in this filing tonight? You were in there quite a few times. Uh, good evening, Jen. Thank you for having me on. My general reaction is, is we have been here before. Uh, in our case, after several years of litigation uh, started by former President Trump, uh, the Supreme Court ruled, just as you indicated, that uh, a sitting president can be investigated. But that's mm -hmm. not the first time the Supreme Court has said that. It said that right. in Nixon. It said that mm -hmm. it said that in the Clinton case. So our case merely, I think, reaffirmed, but in a very strong way, that President Trump is not immune from responding to subpoenas uh, or, or lawful requests for evidence, whether it's from a federal prosecutor or a state prosecutor. So that's where we were when I was district attorney and we ultimately received those records and uh, the Trump organization and its CFO was subsequently indicted for tax fraud. Mm -hmm. uh, I think it goes almost without saying that if a president is, as the Supreme Court holds, that a president is not immune from investigation while he is president, it follows that a president is not immune from prosecution when he is no longer president. Uh, and. I think that uh, uh, the Court of Appeals decision got it right. Uh, I don't know what the Supreme Court will do. Mm. Obviously, this is a different Supreme Court than the Supreme Court we argued before. There are more Trump appointees. Uh, on the other hand, this, even in our case, uh, I ultimately think that no one among the nine justices disagreed with the proposition that a sitting president could be investigated for criminal misconduct. There were some complaints about whether you know, there were some complaints, uh, uh, but they weren't on the they weren't about the substance of the principle mm -hmm. that you just articulated. 
Yeah, I mean, as you as you just said, which is in a very important point, there's ample precedent here, even before your case about presidential immunity. It's been argued many times before. Chief Justice is still the chief justice of the Supreme Court, uh, who is the one I just quoted at the end of that. I know you said you don't want to predict, and I know most people aren't in the prediction game. But even looking just at the law here, do you think they would have any legal case to be made to grant him this immunity? I think the precedent that has been set, which was reaffirmed very strongly by Justice Roberts in Trump v. Vance, would lead the Supreme Court to be comfortable with saying that the president is not immune uh, from prosecution for prior acts while he is no longer president. I think it's not debated, at least in the federal context, that the president wouldn't be charged by federal prosecutors while he is president or she is president. Uh, but that's not where we are. And I think we set a uh, I frankly think we set a very dangerous president precedent uh, where we permit someone who uh, was president who deserves protection from the law and safeguards that ordinary citizens don't have. And he got all of them and more in every matter that he's taken to the Supreme Court. Mm. But ultimately, as all the justices have said uh, from decades ago till to 2020, uh, the president is at heart a citizen. And uh, when he or she is a citizen, uh, they are not immune from responding to law as any other citizen would be. And it would be terrible if that wasn't so. Uh, absolutely. That's how our judicial system is supposed to work. I mean, you're also one of the rare people who have been involved in a case where Trump claimed immunity to deny access to records. I mean, one of the things that struck me here is just this continued argument that he is above the law, that he is immune from the law in many ways. What do you think, studying him as you have, it tells you about his view of how the law applies to him, if at all? Well, ultimately, I think what it's done is uh, with his ability to fund cases, it just, you know, he's been able to achieve uh, delay through uh, appeals and appeals. Uh, but I don't think much of the principle. I've yet to see a court decision that thinks much of the principle. Uh, so what I would say, Jen, is uh, it, he's remarkably consistent, but not very successful. That's that is fair. Let, let's let's see if that is continues to be the case. You know, one of the questions here, as I just outlined, is this this, this delay tactic. Right. And and I wanted to ask you, as somebody who has obviously uh, watched the legal system, been involved at a high level in the legal system, whether the Supreme Court looks at or thinks about that. I mean, if they take this case, it could be delayed past the election. Do they factor that in? Well, I, I can't speak knowingly about what the Supreme Court justices think. But I think they clearly move quickly when they want to, as we've just seen uh, you know, with their with their with their arguments in, on the issue of whether or not President Trump should be disqualified from being on the uh, presidential ballot in California and perhaps subsequently Maine. So they in our case as well, uh, it moved at lightning speed from the district court decision in, in our favor to the court of appeals decision in our favor and then to the Supreme Court in what at the time I would say would be lightning speed. It was probably within a year. Um, so, you know, in court, that's, you know, that's quick. But when the Supreme Court decides and the federal judges decide they want to decide something because it's urgent, they'll do it. Now, 
there may be reasons why perhaps the Supreme Court doesn't want to rush to a judgment in this case and would prefer to have this decided at a, you know, at a later time. Um, I, I think the Supreme Court is not immune from politics. Uh, it, it is, in one sense, our most political court, uh, as well as uh, our most learned court. So we shouldn't expect that they would be uh, uh, immune from looking at the landscape and understanding the political consequences of their of their decisions. We will all be watching closely. Always enjoy having you on and talking to you about all of this. Thank you so much for joining me this evening, Cy Vance. Appreciate it. And coming up, you're looking at video of Donald Trump's motorcade leaving a federal courthouse in Florida today where there was a high stakes hearing on his classified documents case. We'll tell you what happened and talk about just how different that case is from the one involving Joe Biden. The president's personal attorney, Bob Bauer, doesn't do that many interviews, but he's going to be joining me next. We'll be back in just 60 seconds. So today, in his very busy legal week, uh, Donald Trump made an appearance at a federal courthouse in Florida to meet with Judge Aileen Cannon, a judge he appointed and the one who is now overseeing the criminal case into his handling of classified information. The purpose of the closed-door hearing team was basically to discuss why Trump's team thinks the defense should have access to various types of classified evidence, which is, of course, a big factor here. But it was also a reminder of the unique dangers Trump poses as a defendant. Remember, Special Counsel Jack Smith has implored Judge Cannon to keep certain documents sealed out of fear that they could be used to identify more than two dozen witnesses and threaten their safety and testimony. Why? Because that is something that has unfortunately become a pattern to individuals involved in these Trump cases. There's reason to be concerned. It is also just another reminder of how the Trump documents case and the one involving President Biden could not be any more different. And that night and day difference is something the special counsel who led the Biden documents case, Dr. Hur, you know well, points out in his report. Here it is from Robert Hur himself, quote, after being given multiple chances to return classified documents and avoid prosecution, Mr. Trump allegedly did the opposite. He not only refused to return the documents for many months, but he also obstructed justice by enlisting others to destroy evidence and then to lie about it. In contrast, and again, these are her words, Mr. Biden turned in classified documents, consented to the search of multiple locations, including his homes, sat for a voluntary interview, hours of them, and in other ways cooperated with the investigation. So please, let's not forget the clear differences in these two cases. That has been, they've been just a bit overshadowed, I think it's fair to say. Joe Biden was cleared of wrongdoing, and Donald Trump is facing 32 counts of willful retention of national defense information, one count of conspiracy to obstruct justice, three counts of withholding or concealing a document, two counts of false statements, and two counts of altering, destroying, mutilating, or concealing an object or record. I almost had to take a breath there. That's a lot. Joining me now is the personal counsel to President Joe Biden, Bob Bauer. Bob, it's great to see you. Thank you for taking the time. I mean, obviously, one Thank of the main— it's great to be here. I'm great to be with you. One of the main issues that legal experts had with Robert Hur's report was about the way in which he portrayed his interviews with the president. And I have certainly been talking about this quite a bit over the last couple of days as well, the things in the report. Now, you were in the room sitting next to him. There's an ongoing question. I know you said you're not going to answer about when the transcript of that five-hour interview could be released, if it should be released. But I want to know more, if people were to read that transcript, you were sitting there. What do you think their takeaway of it would be about the president's performance and about his conversation? 
Well, first of all, let me tie it back to the point you made at the very beginning. The president directed and those who represented him engaged in full cooperation with the special counsel. And the special counsel's report on that is very clear. The interview, and I will give you my recollection of it. I was there sitting next to the president. Uh, the interview was completely consistent with that posture of cooperation. Uh, he engaged with the questions. He answered the questions to the best of his ability. I have mentioned before that uh, the special counsel at the very beginning indicated to him that he knew that international events must be on the president's mind, uh, that he was going to be taking the president many years back and simply mm -hmm. hope for him to give his best recollection. And that's what the president did. I can tell you that his insinuations or the suggestions in the report uh, about the president's interview just simply don't correspond with my recollection of how that interview went. And I frankly don't understand why they're in the report, don't believe they should be in the report. This was a case that was frankly open and shut from the very first day. There was never any question uh, of the president having engaged in any wrongdoing. And it was a case of full cooperation that began with his discovering and turning over the documents that were found. And from that point forward, and note the special counsel says he cooperated in, quote, other ways, beyond the interview, beyond the turning over the documents, at every turn, the president cooperated with this investigation, and he did so in answering the questions that were put to him in the interview. You also said yesterday, which stuck out to me, I underlined it, that he, the special counsel was asking bad questions. I mean, the thing is with these reports, you only see one side Tell me a little bit more about that. Why were they bad or imprecise, I guess? I wasn't suggesting that every single question was bad. I was simply pointing out that the special counsel had indicated uh, that somehow the president wasn't able to answer questions directly or clearly. And I was simply suggesting, uh, again, based on what I clearly recall, and I think all of us in the room recall, that the president was not only answering questions, he was pointing out flaws in lines of questioning that were put to him by the special counsel. On a couple of occasions, he noted that there was a problem with the question. I think it became immediately clear to everyone in the room there was a problem with the question. I didn't deduce from that that there was something wrong with uh, the special counsel's mental acuity. I just assumed that in those instances, he had framed his questions poorly. But what I was trying to emphasize there was that the president was engaged with this interview. He was able to provide his best recollection. And on a couple of occasions, he pointed out that there were problems with the questions put to him that I think everybody in the room recognized he correctly identified. As someone who has been on the receiving ends of the president unraveling your line of questioning, uh, I, I have been, I know you have been, I, I felt I related a little in that moment. I, I did want to ask you a little bit about that day, because I think this is sometimes lost in the reporting. I mean, it was the day after the two, the day, the two days after the October 7th attack. And obviously the country saw how much that impacted the president. I know from working for him that he often is juggling many things at the same time, making calls with foreign leaders, getting updates. Was that part of the day as well? Did he have to take breaks? Did he come from a two-hour situation room meeting? I mean, what else was happening that day? I can say this. Uh, we kept the appointment. Uh, we, a decision was made. Uh, and of course, this is ultimately the president's decision uh, for any number of reasons uh, that he would keep the agreed date for the interview, which was going to span two days and run five hours, it went somewhat over five hours. But when he 
arrived in the room uh, to meet counsel before proceeding downstairs to the interview, he was coming off of uh, phone calls of obviously urgent importance on these international events. That I knew. Uh, mm. And it was clear that in the preceding hours, he'd been very engaged with these issues, but he had committed to give the interview. We knew that we were coming to the end of the inquiry, and he understood that it was important to the special counsel's investigation that we tried to stay on schedule. Scheduling two days, five hours mm. of interviews of the president's time is not easy to do, and rescheduling them is not easy to do. And so he kept that appointment and he gave that interview. It's often what people don't see, is especially given the time change. My bet is there were hours and hours of, of meetings beforehand. You know, one of the points that you've made and, and other legal minds have said about this report is that it kind of goes, of course, outside of the scope of norms. It, it goes, it, his reporting and who he talked to went outside of what would be normal, even for a special counsel. Do you think that should be investigated or looked into? Because the judicial system, the judiciary is kind of in a, a, not, a not a positive view necessarily by the American public at this point. Well, in the role that I have, all I can do is point it out, which is you had an investigation that ran for 15 months, which could have been concluded in just a few months. There was never any question that the president had not engaged in criminal wrongdoing. He was the self-reporting party here. He had turned the documents over upon discovery, cooperated in every respect. And yet somehow in this report, uh, the special counsel felt compelled to engage in this irrelevant, unfounded and often pejorative commentary. And I think it's clear that uh, that commentary is inconsistent with department norms. And let me just make one point. I want to stress it. The special counsel is bound by the norms and policies of the department like any other prosecutor. The special counsel regulations provide that he is bound by those norms and policies. He doesn't have an exemption from them. There's some view that perhaps because he's a special counsel, he didn't have to observe them. And that is simply not correct. By the terms of the rules, he is to comply with those norms and policies. And he didn't. Do you wish the attorney general had done more? Could he have? I'm not going to I'm not going to speak to anybody other than the special counsel and his performance in that particular report. Uh, the president said the other night that he understood why the attorney general and thought, you know, he could not only under, understand, but did not find fault with the attorney general's decision to appoint a special counsel. It was at that point that I got involved. And so I can speak to what the special counsel did for which the special counsel bears the responsibility. Bob Bauer, thank you. I know you taught a long class before you joined us, so I appreciate you making the time for us tonight. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much, Jen. Coming up, Donald Trump basically doubled down today on his shocking comments from over the weekend, in which he encouraged Russia to attack our NATO allies. I am not. That is not hyperbole. Senator Tim Kaine worked for years to pass a law blocking any president from leaving NATO, and now he's once again sounding the alarm. Senator joins me after a very quick break. So in the summer of 2021, just a couple years ago, I traveled with President Biden on his first trip overseas. There were lots of big headline-grabbing parts of that trip, including a meeting with Queen Elizabeth and a summit with Russian President Vladimir Putin. That was a different time. But what stuck with me were the president's conversations with other NATO and G7 leaders, which happened, that was most of the trip, because they revealed so much about the impact of Donald Trump's one term as president. It was, you know, six months after he left office. 
And in each of these meetings, President Biden reassured allies and key partners that the United States was back, back as an advocate for democracy and the global order, back as a country that would stand up for territorial integrity and stand up against foreign aggressors. But the president was struck by the response he got from world leaders, which was basically, "Okay, you're back, but for how long? So when Donald Trump invited Russia to attack them over the weekend, that is NATO allies, how do you think they heard it? Well, we don't have to wonder. Poland's foreign minister told The New York Times, quote, NATO's Article 5 has so far been invoked once to help the U.S. and Afghanistan after 9-11. Poland sent a brigade for a decade. We did not send a bill to Washington. But Republicans here at home don't seem at all concerned with Trump's comments. Senator Lindsey Graham's response, here it is. Give me a break. I mean, it's Trump. All I can say is, while Trump was president, nobody invaded anybody. I think the point here is to, in his way, to get people to pay. Just Trump being Trump, I I guess. I mean, inviting Vladimir Putin to attack allies, just normal stuff here. Uh, What about Senator Marco Rubio? Was he outraged, angry, pounding his fist on the desk? He was not. Did he go out of his way to measure or reassure our closest allies? Of course not. I mean, he was talking about something, a story that he talked about happened in the past. By the way, Donald Trump was president and he didn't pull us out of NATO. He doesn't talk like a traditional politician. And uh, we've already been through this now. You'd think people had figured it out by now. Trump was telling a story. Okay, I mean, that's a pretty freaking scary story, especially for allies around the world. By the way, Senator Rubio helped draft and pass a bipartisan bill last year preventing the president from leaving NATO. Wonder why he felt compelled to do that. Joining me now as the co-sponsor of that bill was Senator Rubio, Democratic Senator Tim Kaine, my home senator and also a foreign policy expert. He serves on the Foreign Relations and Armed Services Committee. So, Senator, let me start there. I, I don't think I, we should ever be surprised necessarily by what President Trump does. But I, it is disappointing, even for me. I was at the State Department in 2014 during the first Russian invasion of Ukraine. When you hear comments like that from senators who have long been supporters of kind of global norms of the protection of the territorial integrity of, say, Ukraine, I guess, again, we shouldn't be surprised. But I would just love to know what your thoughts are when you hear their responses to what Trump had to say. Uh, Well, Jen, it's really disappointing. People aren't surprised that Donald Trump says what he says. But what our allies want to see is what the American public, through their representatives in Congress, think. I gave a speech about the 70th anniversary of NATO in Paris a number of years ago, and I was struck by the audience's reaction, which is, yeah, Donald Trump, that's, you know, he's one guy, but is his election a deeper reflection that either Congress or the American public no longer values alliances? Mm-hmm. Alliances are most important military asset we have, our our personnel, our platforms, but ultimately it's the alliances, the democracies linking arms, that is the thing that most frightens the dictators, the Russias, the Chinas, the Irans, the North Koreas. And so Donald Trump's going to say what he's going to say, but when colleagues of mine who even joined with me uh, to make clear that no president can get out of NATO without a two-thirds vote of the Senate or an act of Congress. They joined with me for a reason. I started this effort in 2018 with John McCain, and after he passed, Senator Rubio picked up the mantle. They joined with me because they wanted to send a message that alliances are important. And when they suddenly have a front runner in the presidential race who is willing to tear up alliances, the fact that they cravenly 
bow to his you know, latest utterance is disappointing. But the good news is we've got a guardrail in place now. It's not a guarantee, but it's a guardrail. And we will be able to stop him from precipitously withdrawing from NATO, stop him or anyone else who wants to do it. It's, it's a really important point, and that guardrail is important. We need lots of guardrails. You, you know very well that, well, this bill that you co-sponsored with Senator Rubio, who just made those storytelling points very strangely, is, is important. Trump could also, or anyone who wants to, they could also weaken NATO and weaken U.S. support by doing a range of things, including pulling back troops and our presence in a number of Eastern European countries. What concerns you that maybe uh, isn't covered and we need to be mindful of? You're, you're right. Our bill stops the president from unilaterally withdrawing from NATO, but the president could try to redeploy troops, pull troops out, send us a budget that underfunds defense in Europe, and it ends up being on Congress's shoulders to provide the check. Um, but we do this every year. Often, presidents of both parties send us a defense bill that has things we don't like, and Congress changes it. And we send a different bill back to the president's desk, and, um, and we'll probably have to do that this year. Um, so if a, if a President Trump or a President anyone in the future were to want to reduce our support for our allies, uh, the, the burden shifts over to the Article I branch. And it's the Article I branch that's the budgeting branch. Um, and that is our, our most salient power here. I think that the, the overwhelming support for my NATO bill uh, means that there is bipartisan support in both houses for the U.S. linking arms with allies. Yes, there are some loud pro-Trump voices, but they're not the majority. Uh, the majority here in both houses is still in support of Democratic allies of the United States linking arms. We're stronger together. And... Um, but we're going to have to be diligent uh, going forward. We can't just assume that everybody's on board with this. And after President Trump's comments over the weekends, we're going to have to work extra hard to send the right message to our allies. Such an important point. And, and Senator, we're going to have to have you back on and talk more about Israel. I know you're uh, obviously working on this supplemental foreign aid bill, uh, but we had to talk about Trump's comments. It's so important for people to understand how dangerous they are. Thank you so much for joining me this evening and taking the time and a busy, busy week for you. Glad to, Jen. And what we're debating on the floor right now is about allies, too. Do, do, do we link arms with allies or not? My hope is the Senate's going to pass a bill in the next day or so that shows that we will. Thank you so much, Senator. Great to see you. And coming up, it turns out one of Donald Trump's mega donors basically funded a Super Bowl ad featuring RFK Jr. Sound a little crazy? Trust me, it is. I'm going to explain when, why, when we come back. So Super Bowl ads don't typically jump into the political fray, for good reason. But last night, one certainly did. A Super PAC supporting independent presidential candidate and well-known anti-vaxxer, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., effectively copied one of the most iconic political ads of all time. An ad for RFK Jr.'s uncle, by the way, President John F. Kennedy. Now, as you can see, the shots were pretty much lifted and re-edited from the original campaign ad from 1960. Except, of course, with RFK Jr.'s picture superimposed in the place of JFK's. So it's pretty clear that it was intentionally trying to capitalize on the candidate's very famous last name. Let's just say the Kennedy family didn't exactly appreciate the linkage. Bobby Shriver, who's the son of Eunice Kennedy, had this to say last night on Twitter. 
My cousin's Super Bowl ad used our uncle's faces and my mother's. She would be appalled by his deadly healthcare views. Respect for science, vaccines, and healthcare equity were in her DNA. She strongly supported my healthcare work at the One Campaign and Red, which he opposes. Now, given RFK Jr.'s extremist views on vaccines, the family has good reason, of course, to be so appalled. When it comes to political dynasties, the Kennedys have long been a part of not just the political conversation, but they've also led the fight for better health care. They've promoted modern medicine and advanced medical research, efforts that they continue with many generations of Kennedys today. When it comes to RFK Jr.'s bid for president, what's even more jarring than all of that is perhaps the kind of people who have been pushing and most importantly, pay attention to this part, funding his candidacy. Because it all seemed to start with Trump ally Steve Bannon. Yes, that's Steve Bannon. There's only one who encouraged Kennedy to run for months before he finally declared. Why? Because Bannon believed Kennedy would be a useful, quote, chaos agent who could stoke anti-vax sentiment in the 2024 race. How dark is that? In fact, RFK Jr. was reportedly approached by Trump's advisors about joining the Republican ticket as Trump's running mate. Yes, something that Steve Bannon said, by the way, would help Trump win in a massive landslide over Joe Biden. Likewise, RFK Jr. has been embraced by Trump's donors. Always follow the money, including Timothy Mellon, a guy who gave, by the way, $20 million to groups supporting Trump in 2020. $20 million. He already has donated at least $15 million to a super PAC supporting Kennedy. And yes, that's the very same super PAC that paid probably $7 million for the Super Bowl ad. In other words, MAGA Republicans are propping up the campaign of a fringe candidate, anti-vaxxer, who happens to have a very famous last name, falsely portraying him, by the way, as the legitimate heir to the Kennedy legacy. In reality, Robert Kennedy Jr. may be a spoiler who could tip the election in Trump's favor, especially in certain states where the Kennedy name is still very popular. His candidacy is an affront to his own family not to mention an insult to the legacy of JFK. In fact, in a speech to Democrats back in 1961, President Kennedy issued a prescient warning about the dangers of conspiracy-minded members of the political fringe. In the most critical periods of our nation's history, there have always been those on the fringes of our society who have sought to escape their own responsibility by finding a simple solution, an appealing slogan, or a convenient scapegoat. At times, these fanatics have achieved a temporary success among those who lack the will or the wisdom to face unpleasant facts or unsolved problems. Now, RFK Jr., a member of his own family, may have become the very thing that President Kennedy warned us about more than six decades ago. We're going to talk much more about RFK Jr. and his potential impact on this race, which is important to pay attention to when we come back. When Senator Dianne Feinstein died in September of last year, there was intense speculation about who California Governor Gavin Newsom would appoint to be her temporary replacement. Governor Newsom had committed to appointing a black woman to fill the spot, and he kept his word. Two days after Senator Feinstein passed away, Newsom announced LaFonza Butler, 
would fill the seat and complete the term. She was the president of EMILY's List, and she is now California's first openly LGBTQ plus United States senator. She's the first black lesbian to openly serve in Congress in American history. And she's the only black woman serving in the Senate right now. Senator Butler is not seeking re-election in the Senate, and the race for the seat is really heating up. Congressman Adam Schiff, Congresswoman Katie Porter, and Barbara Lee are all vying for that seat. But until that race is decided in November, Senator Butler will continue to represent the great state of California. And all of that is why I'm really looking forward to talking with her this week at Howard University. This will be her first major sit-down interview. And there are so many things I look forward to talking to her about. Our conversation will air this Sunday at noon Eastern right here on MSNBC. And I'm really looking forward to digging into everything from where she went to school to what she's going to do in the Senate. That does it for me tonight. You can catch the show every Sunday at 12 p.m. and Monday at 8 p.m. on MSNBC. And don't forget to follow the show on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. For now, goodbye from Washington and we'll see you next week.